you. They knew I was coming. One bottle of water. Two bottles of water. There's two more behind me. And of course, I came with a traveler, like a good alcoholic. <clears throat> I have my own. That's exactly how I used to party, right? I'd bring mine, then I'd drink yours, and then I'd still have mine left over just in case. Hi, everybody. My name is Lisa, and I've gone from a hateful alcoholic to a grateful alcoholic. And I'm so happy. You have no idea. Scared shitless, but so happy to be here with all of you. And, um, you know, it's funny. Karen, the lady who booked me for this convention, um, she's left already. So hopefully that's no indication of, uh, you know, what she's afraid of is going to happen here today. <laughs> she's like, I'm getting out of here. Um, and, uh, you know, what a great lineup. So you got what you paid for already. I'm just kind of like the parting gift. Uh, we've had Scott, who we learned so much from on Friday night. I can now say my beautiful dear friend, Larsine. Uh, who I will never turn my back on now that I know what live and let live means to her. And she's a kind and gentle soul. Um, speaking of not turning my back, what about Jason? <laughs> Who thinks that a kiss can get someone pregnant and then asks if he can hug my wife. Smart man, though, he did ask for permission first because he was afraid of getting the crap beat out of him. Right, Jason? <laughs> and if Kissin gets a girl pregnant, he basically went to second base. <laughs> That's right, coming down a little bit here. I did write myself a prayer because over the last six hours, I've been holed up in my room talking to God. And... Um, you know, to help get over the nerves and everything. So I wrote myself this little prayer because um, now you have a clearer picture of the crazy lunatic that's in front of you. I, uh, there's a battle that goes on up here in between uh, these two ears every day, every moment of every day. And over the course of this weekend, surrounded by these amazing speakers, you know, they started talking about a circuit. And I thought, that, wow, they're all into electronics. And... and <laughs> And then I realized, like, they travel together, they know each other, and, uh, and so the tension in me is just rising over the course of the weekend, and I have to keep talking to God, like, bring me down, bring me down, bring me back. I'm exactly where you would have me be, because this is where my feet are. So if I'm standing here, this is where God wants me to be. So then I wrote this little prayer, God, I offer all of me to all of them and to all of you today. Do with me as you will. Relieve me of the bondage of self. Because let's face it, that's one heavy burden you've saddled me with. So it's the least you could do. And again, just help me 
uh, remember that I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be and will say exactly what you want to. And the proof of that is for me to look down and acknowledge where I am standing. So thank you, God, for bringing me this far. All right, now I'm just going to try to keep an eye on the time there. Um, yeah, this is what I learned from Scott, too. I thought, isn't it great that I've met another fellow bow tie guy who actually ties his own tie? <laughs> and, and thank God for YouTube, because that's how I learned to tie a tie. You know, because not growing up as a guy, your dad doesn't teach the little girl how to tie a tie on Sunday. Um, and, uh, wow, I got some stories about Sundays, too. So let me start at the beginning. As I said, my name is Lisa. I'm an alcoholic. Hi. Uh, I am currently residing in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And uh, yes, Canadians. A lot of you here. Here's another thing as I look around the room. Karen told me that half of you would be gone by now. <laughs> Expectations are the killer of, of uh, contentment, right? Killer of contentment and peace and calm and serenity, expectations. And I'm always full of expectations, uh, false expectations appearing real. Um, you know, I had this battle, too, this morning about an expectation about how I would do. If I do really well, maybe I'll be on a circuit. <laughs> if I do really bad and I bomb my poor wife, <laughs> she's going to be scooping up little pieces of me all day. You know, little bits of my ego off the walls. So, <laughs> save the children. Think of Ashley. For those of you who haven't had the pleasure of meeting my beautiful wife, uh, yes, I did marry a child bride. Not in a Roman Polanski kind of way. She wasn't 14, but she is 14 years younger than me. And I do have to set the record straight. She chased me, Jason. She chased me. <laughs> So another thing I'm truly grateful for, because I wouldn't have had the courage probably to ask her out. All right, let's go back to the, uh, the beginning. Um, I also want to thank Michael S. There's Michael over there. Uh, Michael came to a roundup, uh, a small 70, 75-person gathering in northern Ontario. I don't know what he was doing there when he has a choice to be here. But there he was, and uh, after my talk, uh, he came up to me and said, um, I'm part of a speaker-seeker committee for this conference called SUS. Can I submit your tape? I said, I don't have a tape. <laughs> so he said, well, you do now. I bought it because they were taping today's event. And I'm, oh, sure. No problem. Oh, that tape. Yeah, go ahead. You can submit that. So thank you very much for submitting that. And then I forgot about it. And a year later, I got a call from Karen. And uh, I didn't know who she was. And, um, and, you know, you always answer the phone skeptically these days when you get an unknown number, right? And um, I work uh, with the police service in Toronto, so when I get an unknown number, I like to play that game of, uh, you know, how can I mess with the person who's trying to scam me on the phone? So luckily I went easy on her because I didn't believe it at first, but she told me about uh, being invited to the conference. So then I had a whole year to get nervous. It's fantastic. Maybe you should let people know just a month in advance. <laughs> but, um, yeah. And you know what? I thought about telling that story that Pat tells, 
told at the beginning too because I remember she asked me that question, and I and I said, yeah, I've uh, I'm don't know, I've never been a speaker at a convention before, and I swear to God, her face was like. And then I have the seasoned vet over here, Larsine, saying, we're going to teach you how to respond to that. Next time, just say yes. Why, yes, I am. <laughs> you know, kind of the truth. It's my first time, and I'm the closer. So why, yes, yes, I am. All right. See, um, I am the kind of person, too. I'm the kind of alcoholic that needs to be liked. I don't know if anybody can relate to that. And if you don't like me, um, then I somehow either cease to exist or my existence is painful, and I feel terrible about myself. And I think that started at a very young age. Um, and I'm going to take you somewhere dark for just a minute, but bear with me. I'm going to come right back, and we're going to go back to laughter. Um, Jason showed us how to do that masterfully yesterday. you know. Um, and I love a story that has uh, depth and weight, because it talks about the humanity and the vulnerability of our situations. So I grew up in a family of five kids, uh, so seven people in total, not a lot of elbow room around the dinner table. And, um, and I was the youngest of those five children. Uh, so by the time I had come around, I think my mom was kind of done with the mothering part of things. And uh, there was a you know, little more loosey-goosey. Um, and, uh, and I think she was tired. I also think she went to the same edu sex education class as Jason because she too thought her first child came from kissing. Um, and I don't know how that happens. But, and then, you know, by the time she got to me, I'm like, if she doesn't like children so much, why does she keep having them? You know? Uh, but yeah, I've had a difficult relationship with my mom for most of my existence. Um, but I do know that my mom loved me to the best of her ability. I do know that today. And I didn't always know that. Um, and uh, so there was this situation where we used to have these people who lived across the road from us, an older couple, kind of like grandparents. And I used to love going over there because that's where all the cookies were. You know, you got treated nicely, and they just adored me. And uh, then they moved uh, about five blocks away, and we didn't see them that much anymore. And the elderly gentleman passed away. And the elderly lady met, bumped into my mom and wanted me to come to his funeral. And that was the first time I ever saw someone in a casket. And it was, it was, I was horrified. And I think she wanted to make up for that night. So she asked if she could have me, like you would a grandkid, for a sleepover. So I went there for a sleepover. And uh, the next day I got up, and I'm five, right? So I'm already bored because she's elderly <laughs> and there's not much going on. So I go out front to play. And across the street is a guy, and he has a dog. And uh, I see his wife get in the car, and she leaves. And he says, uh, he says, come on over and see the dog. So I go over and see the dog. But the dog's inside now. The dog's now not out in the backyard. So he takes me inside. And I disappear for eight horrible hours. And nobody knows where I am. And uh, my innocence is taken from me. And he does unspeakable things, things that I don't understand and I don't know. And I, I'm paralyzed with fear. And uh, this is also in an age when, you know, you're taught that um, you just do what elders tell you to do. And they know best. And I'm so confused. And at the end of it all, he gives me uh, a pop. Sorry, American soda. He gives me a soda, um, candy-flavored water, sits me down in front of the TV, and a little while goes by, and then there's a 
furious pounding on the door. And my mother has been running through this neighborhood that she doesn't know, pounding on doors, because she went to pick me up, and uh, the old lady doesn't know where I am. And she didn't think to look for me or call the police. So my mom is in a lather. She's frantic. And uh, he says, she's right here, just watching TV. And he pushes me out the door. And, and what he had told me before she got there was, uh, if you tell anyone, um, no one will believe you. And you're a dirty little girl. And it's all your fault. And no one will love you. And I believe every word. So when my mom grabbed me by the hand and she raced back to the car dragging me, the first thought in my mind was, it's true what he said. She's angry and she's mad at me. And what I would come to learn later was that was just absolute terror and fear. Every mother's worst nightmare. Every mother's worst nightmare. And she asked me when we got in the car, did that man do anything to you in that tone of voice? And again, I heard, she's mad at me, it's my fault. And I could relate to that part of your story, and I'd never heard anyone say this before, but I was biting down on my tongue so hard I could taste iron. I could taste blood in my mouth because I didn't want to cry, and I didn't want her to know the truth. And I looked out the window, and I never looked at her the whole way home, and I said, no, mommy. And that was all we said. And we wouldn't speak of it again until I was 19 years of age. So that was the first time I told a lie to protect myself and to protect someone else. And lying became part of my life. It became part of my story. We're going to fast forward a few years later, and uh, I'm in high school. And this is when, uh, actually, you know what? I'm going to tell you a little story about grade four. That's when the other girls were discovering the joy of boys. And I was not, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Drinking did take me to some dark places, ladies and gentlemen. Sometimes, eventually, later, after my teenage years, I would eventually kiss boys. That was a dark place that my drinking <laughs> took me to. But in grade four, all the other little girls are discovering boys and they're playing kissing tag. And you want to know what happens when a boy catches me for kissing tag, Jason? <laughs> right? I learned a leg sweep when I was little. <laughs> and you're down on the ground on your back and I've got my foot in the y-axis of your body. <laughs> Suddenly, little boys don't want to play kissing tag with Lisa anymore. And you know what? I don't have as many girlfriends anymore because they're like, they don't want to play with the girls that I hang out with either. <laughs> so I'm sort of friendless in grade four. Um, we move away. We go to a different city. And we've moved from this small city to a larger city in uh, suburbia. And uh, I'm shy. I don't talk much. Um, since that incident, I went from happy, joyous, and free to introverted, quiet, and I try not to be noticed. I know that's hard to believe today, but I did. <laughs> I changed, and I tried not to be noticed. And um, again, um, things happen, right? I'm, my mom loved to make me wear dresses. <laughs> In case you didn't notice, not my thing, not my jam. Uh, years later, my mom would get mad because she always tried to take me shopping and look at pink things. And I would look, like, let's go look at the men's section. She didn't like that very much, so we stopped going shopping together. Um, I remember standing in line for, uh, now this is back again, my mind's all over the place, kindergarten, and they make you line up outside before you go in. My mom made me wear a dress. 
the little kid, little boy behind me decides it's, it'd be funny to lift up my skirt, you know? And he says, I see London, I see... He never got to Paris. <laughs> Wham! <laughs> Lights out. <laughs> and I missed the first day of kindergarten. Yeah, so that happened before grade four. So already at a young age, I've got some rage. And I've learned that my solution is violence. So, and that's how I keep people away from me for a very long time. I have anger management issues. I have rage issues. And uh, if you scare me, I'm violent. Um, and that way, you know, it's like, I'm sure boys learn this. Uh, you, you go up to the biggest kid and you knock him out and then people leave you alone. And I kind of learned that too. Um, in high school, though, I hit grade nine. We've moved again. And uh, this feeling of I just want to be liked. I just want to be loved. I don't want to be lonely anymore. I want friends. So I, um, I change again. I put on a different mask. Scott talked a lot about masks. I put on a different mask. And I become somebody who I'm not, which is an outgoing, life of the party kind of person. And what helps with that is the discovery of alcohol. Alcohol does not make me feel comfortable in my own skin. Uh, the only thing that will help me with that later on in life, I find here in these rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's a power greater than myself, which I did not have when I first came here. Uh, it did not make me feel comfortable in my own skin. What it made me was, I did not care how you felt about me when I was drinking. Now, when I'm not drinking, I go back to caring <laughs> what you think about me, and I'm also now filled with remorse and guilt and shame over the things that I've done when I'm drinking. Uh, it's not a good place to be. And I chose, um, because I have a disease, I chose to stay in that dark place for almost 20 years. Um, it would cost me a lot of things. Um, I have had five proposals. Um, I proposed to three women that I never followed through on because I'm not very good at uh, follow through. I'm good on the setup. And, uh, you know, I watch a lot of romantic movies, so I know how to behave. <laughs> it's like I can study a part, but I'm terrible at the follow through. I proposed to three people, doesn't follow through. Um, and then I have a lady who proposes to me. Takes her about three years of our relationship. And uh, we were in a relationship for 10 years. Took her another five more to realize probably marrying me would be an unsafe bet. And I'm, I'm getting more and more angry, bitter, and resentful as the years go on because, like, okay, you know, usually after a proposal, you get the wedding, and that's not happening. Um, and I can't figure out why we're still staying together. And neither one of us will make the decision to separate, right? Um, I would come to learn later on that that's codependency. I was codependent on her. She was codependent on me. Um, and I was one of those, I talked about this in the workshop the other day, you know, learning um, not to talk badly about my partner. Uh, my family loves my wife today. I never tell them anything bad about her, not that there's anything bad to say. <laughs> uh, you know, I learned that from the mistakes of the past. I could never figure out why my, my family hated my ex so much. And it's because I always told them the negative. I always told them the worst thing. You know, so my drinking uh, cost me a lot. It's funny because it didn't cost me jobs. I always managed to keep jobs. 
And uh, when I first came in, I was thinking, you know, I haven't lost a lot of things. Uh, I've had a house, I've had a cottage, I had two cars, I had a partner that I managed to fool for 10 years and keep her around. Um, and through that uh, relationship, she had had a child from a previous marriage. I thought I had it all, and yet I still wasn't happy. And what I, I came to realize through Alcoholics Anonymous was that I have a disease of more. I always want more. And once I get the thing that I want, the thing that I think is going to complete me, it's going to make me happy, it's going to solve all my problems, whether it be a person, a car, a house, a new job, I get it, and I still feel the darkness inside. Uh, my sponsor, I talked to her this morning too, and she said, please don't tell the Dexter story. And I'm like, I have to tell the Dexter story. Dexter's a part of me. Does anyone know the show Dexter? I believe that Dexter lives in my head. <laughs> I have a dark passenger. So, and I, yeah, and you know, seriously, probably if I could get away with things, I would. <laughs> you know, especially if you cut me off in traffic, there's a whole scene that plays out in a, in a millisecond. I've cut you off, I've run you off the road, and there's a scalpel and some plastic. <laughs> things aren't looking good for you. That's my Dexter story. Um, you know, the, the mind is, is a scary place. My mind is a very scary place. Um, and I spent a lot of time there. I have had uh, several sponsors over the years, um, beautiful sponsors. My very first sponsor was a guy, uh, and I thought, this guy is the nicest man I've ever met. And he did a lot of charity work. And back then I was in radio. I had a radio broadcasting career for 17 years. And the great thing about radio is you can't see anyone. No one can see you, and you just basically sit in a room alone and talk, so I can do that. I sit up here in this room all the time and talk and have conversations with imaginary people, so radio was not much different. And I met this guy because he did a lot of charity work, and I would have him on the show, and we would plug his thing, and then I find out he's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And this is why he's such a great guy, right? He's living the principles of this program. And I say, well, you should come on the show next time and you should talk about Alcoholics Anonymous. It sounds like a great place. I'm not interested in it because you guys don't drink. But I'm fascinated by the fact that you're happy and you seem to have a good life and you do that all without alcohol. Let's talk about that. And he's like, well, there's a tradition about that. We don't do that. Um, this guy would later become my sponsor when my ex said, um, I think you have a problem with drinking. I don't have a problem with drinking. He's like, let me rephrase. I have a problem with your drinking. Larsine can relate. Uh, and it was a big problem, you know, and I behaved badly. And again, it all comes back to that need to be liked, seeking love and attention, or what I thought love was. I thought love was attention. And that attention had to be all the time, 24-7. I was exhausting to be with. Absolutely exhausting. It's like a giant baby without the diaper change. <laughs> to be fair, there might have been a few diaper changes too. <laughs> I am a raging alcoholic. <laughs> and I remember in the beginning of our relationship too, she was so sweet, there'd be water next to the bed and a Tylenol and a little love note. By the end of it, I was still lying on the bathroom floor covered in my own vomit. And she was like, yeah, you 
And she never went to Al-Anon, but, you know, I think maybe she got some notes from somebody. Just leave her there. Um, <laughs> a, loving, a loving partner, you know, and I ruined that. I ruined all that because I felt she just didn't love me. And really the end of that sentence was she didn't love me enough. And, uh, and no one could. No one could because there was this big hole inside of me that needed to be filled. And no matter what you brought to the table, it was never going to be enough because I have that disease of more that needs to be filled. So we broke up. And uh, when we broke up, sorry, I was talking about Roy. Roy, this beautiful sponsor, uh, she called him and he came over and I said, well, Roy, uh, Lisa, my, my ex's name was also Lisa, I know, Lisa squared. Um, Lisa thinks I have a drinking problem. And he said, I've been waiting for you. And I wanted to punch him right in the face. <laughs> what do you mean? So that was when I became aware that other people could see that I had a problem long before I could see it. Because I didn't think it was a problem. You see, drinking was my solution. And I think we can all relate to that too. Drinking was a solution to the way that I felt. And it made me feel a sense of ease and comfort once I had those first couple of drinks a sense of ease and comfort, that caring, that need to be liked, stopped, because I didn't care what you or anyone else thought anymore. Uh, so he brought me to Alcoholics Anonymous, and Roy was an ex-con. So Roy brought me to all the best meetings with all the ex-cons. And I was like, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> I, I didn't go as far down the scale as these guys did. Um, and I remember, too, I was so scared that people would recognize me. Because at that time, I was in a small town on the East Coast, and my face was on billboards everywhere. And sure enough, you know, you think about your fear long enough, and I think you manifest it. And I walk into my first church basement meeting, and this girl comes up. She's like, oh, my God, you're Lisa. I know you. I'm like, oh, God. I tell him I'm never going back to that meeting again. Um, I had another meeting that I went to because I wanted to get to know the gay community. Uh, that's what I told my sponsor. What I real I was looking for a date. <laughs> so I'm going to go to those gay meetings because I'm special and unique. So I go to one of these gay meetings and uh, I'm sitting there and right out this big window is the fear store right across from our meeting. And I'm like, these guys are a bunch of jerks. What the hell are they doing having a meeting across from the beer store? So again, I call my sponsor and say, I can't go to that meeting anymore. There's a beer store across the street. And, you know, sponsors are amazing. They're profound and they're full of wisdom. And he says, Lisa, is the room in a square? Why, yes, it is. He said, did you ever think you could sit with your back to the window and look at the wall? Genius. The man is a genius. And, and I would have many other genius sponsors, most of whom I didn't listen to, I didn't want to listen to. Um, I came into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous in 2005, and, um, and it didn't stick, you know. Uh, I was one of these people who said AA didn't work for me as I was sitting at the bar. I, I made it about two years completely dry. That's a good time. <laughs> Ask my ex. It's a great time. Very, very angry. That's when all of my emotions came back. Most of them were anger and rage and jealousy and envy. And uh, they came back hard and uh, our relationship couldn't take it. And I'm a genius alcoholic too and a master manipulator. So after about a year of no sex 
and complete isolation inside the relationship, I sit her down for the talk. And the talk is, I don't uh, feel love anymore. And uh, this isn't working out. So, like, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> and she's sitting there just in silence, like, okay, she's thinking about it, what she's going to do about it. And so I thought, well, I'll give her a little extra nudge. I found an apartment across the street, and it's for rent, and I think I'm going to move out. And she starts to cry, and I'm like, yes, I've got her. Things are going to change. And they sure as hell were, because she said, when are you packing? I think that sounds like a good idea. So, you know, and I can't go back on a bluff. That would make me look foolish. So I pack up a suitcase of things, and I move across the street, which I'm here to tell you, not a good idea for a crazy person. because I'm crazy and I'm obsessed and I want her to miss me. And so, and we have two dogs, she keeps one, I take the other. So I walk that dog outside of her apartment at the far end of the parkette so that I can kind of get a look up into the apartment window to see if she's having anyone over. So eventually I come to the conclusion with good sponsorship, I should probably get a different apartment and move. <laughs> So I moved to a different part of the city, and that really helps because uh, I carried a lot of resentment towards her. And as I said, I'm new in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm dry. I'm going to meetings. You know, they say meeting makers make it. Bullshit. <coughs> <coughs> that was not my experience. I went to a lot of meetings, and I was not making it with anybody, uh, and I was not making it better for myself. Nobody wanted me to sponsor them, and nobody wanted to date me either, because I didn't have what anybody wanted, clearly. Yeah. So I get, um, I get this new sponsor. His name is Luke, and I've had Luke for about 10 years. And, um, you know, I said to him, after I did my fourth and fifth, I could not get over this resentment towards Lisa. It's my ex. Um, and, uh, and he said, well... You know, one of the things that I told you to do was to pray for her. You know, if you want to get over resentment, we're taught in this program, you need to pray for them. I'm like, okay, all right, I'm crying this prayer thing, so I'll do that. I go home and I pray for her. He's like, pray for her every day, three times a day for two weeks. And then he calls me up about halfway through, about a week later, and he's like, so do you feel any better? I said, no, see, I told you this prayer thing doesn't work. I don't feel better. And he says, well, are you praying for her? I said, yeah. He goes, what are you saying? <clears throat> if you're listening with children, you might want to, you know, mute this part. Dear God, please give that fucking bitch everything she deserves and then some. Amen. <laughs> and he did what you guys are doing. He just laughed and laughed. He often laughed at me. <laughs> And in his genius, infinite wisdom, I think I see the problem, Lisa. He said, I think you misunderstood me. <laughs> You're supposed to pray for them to have everything that you would want for yourself. And he said, we're going to take it to the next level. Pray for her to have everything that you had hoped that you would have together. 
like, this man hates me. <laughs> hates, hates me. So I did that, and uh, something miraculous happened. She got engaged. <laughs> Who says God isn't real? Truthfully, you know, I was feeling better. Something had shifted in me, and uh, there'd been a release. There'd also been an awakening. We talk about spiritual awakenings, and that's something that I really wanted to focus on this talk. You can see the kind of angry, crazy, deranged, obsessive, stalking, I could go on, kind of individual I was. And I hope that for those of you that have met me over the course of this weekend, you see that I'm different. Um, I have a beautiful wife, what a gift, um, who, who loves me and adores me for exactly who I am. I get to show up for her in the way that I never showed up for anybody else. So that's change in action. With my ex, um, when she, you know, got over the fear of telling me she was engaged, gets better, to a man, Jason, if you can believe it. Uh, Luke, I uh, got another resentment. <laughs> to get over that. And I said, I said a response to that that I never thought would be the kind of response that would come out of my mouth. It was, I'm so happy for you. You deserve it. Oh, not in that way. <laughs> That was a lady in a happy marriage over there to a dude, eh? <laughs> yeah, you deserve it. I hope that toilet seat is up forever. <laughs> and when Lisa and I met, we met on the east coast of Canada. That's back when I was in radio and I felt like I was somebody because I had like thousands of people telling me I was. And, uh, and a bunch of my friends invited me back there. They wanted to have a big reunion party because I was coming back for a visit. And I said, let's invite Lisa and her fiance, Duncan, and crickets. You know why? Because they were my friends, and I had told them how awful she was. And I'm like, come on, guys. You were friends with her, too, for 10 years. This is a nice thing to do. And uh, I would like our kid to come. I would like to see them all, and I want to congratulate her. So sure enough, we're at this beautiful party in this backyard, and people are ostracizing her and her uh, fiancé. And we sit down to dinner, and, uh, and I, I make a toast. And uh, mine's sparkling water, by the way. I'm sober again. And uh, my toast is um, to the beautiful uh, couple at the table. I wish them uh, all the success and happiness in the world. And I say, because, Lisa, you deserve nothing but the best life has to offer. And I hope that Duncan gives you that. And uh, my stepkid is crying and comes up and gives me a big hug and the room changes and people are nice to her and they get to know her future husband. And they're still together and they're a happy couple today and he's a great uh, extra dad to our kid. You know, that's change. That's change. I think I got about 10 minutes left so I should get to wrapping this up. Um, so. 
my sober date is January 1st, 2010. Um, sorry, 2014, back up there. I say 2010 because I haven't had a drink since 2010, but here's what happens. I take my will back at some point in the program. You know, life disappoints me. Uh, I haven't discovered this higher power thing fully yet, and I take my will back, and uh, I get a resentment. Um, I'm dating someone, and uh, I find out that she's an alcoholic and a closet cocaine user. I always wonder why she'd come out of the bathroom a completely different person. <laughs> Uh, so in order to cope with that, her crazy, I think, well, there's a solution. It's drugs. And it's okay because I'm an alcoholic. So I just go out and do some outside issues. I consult with my sponsor first, and he tells me that's probably not a good idea. That's good advice, Luke. So I disappear out of Luke's life. I change my home group. I go to AA for a little while, uh, and I don't drink. Uh, but I'm doing all these outside issues. And the outside issues lead to uh, a daily dependence and uh, complete isolation. That girlfriend and I, thankfully, we break up, and, um, and I'm left with me again. And uh, I don't want to live anymore because if this is the best that life has to offer, um, I decide there's only one option. There's only one way out. So... Um, I had sent my ex an email because she didn't check her email that often. And I said, if anything should ever happen to me, would you please take care of the dogs? Because I had dogs. And uh, she never checked her email. But that night, she checked her email. And I'm sitting there. I've gotten as uh, high on outside issues as you can possibly get. And I'm trying to figure out how to, how to tie a noose with an extension cord. And uh, there's a knock on my door. And it's two of her friends and it's 2 o'clock in the morning, and she had called them and said, I can't get a hold of Lisa, and I'm really worried. And they told her she was crazy, but she was right. And uh, they came over and interrupted my plan. And, you know, my mother raised me well. Uh, I knock on the door. I go through the peephole. I'm all paranoid. And I'm like, oh, crap. And I start cleaning up and trying to hide what I've been doing. Um, so they interrupted that plan. And it was a couple months later that I, I called Luke. Uh, January 1st at 8 o'clock in the morning, and like a good alcoholic, he was sober and awake. And he, and he answered the phone. January 1st, right? Sober and awake. And he answers the phone. And I said, I remember a while ago, you said to me, Lisa, I don't know why, if you're doing all the things that I'm suggesting, why you're still so angry and bitter. Um, and I said, I'm, I want to tell you today, I wasn't doing the things that you were suggesting. I was just nodding my head, you know, because he got tired of my yeah buts and my I, I know. And uh, so eventually I just stopped talking and just nodded my head and I drifted away. And uh, I said, I would really like it if you'd be my sponsor again. And he said, what's going to be different this time? He's a, he's a tough sponsor. And I said, I'm willing to do anything. I'm, I don't want to go on living the way that I'm living. Life's just too hard that way. And he said, okay, I want you to look up in the directory, see meeting near you, you're going to go to that meeting, you're going to make it your home group, and you're going to get a service commitment. I'm like, day one? <laughs> what? He said, there it is, Lisa, there's the defiance and the obstinance and that know-it-all attitude. You know, you're constantly fighting. I thought you said it was going to be different this time. 
I said, okay, you're right, I'm sorry. And uh, we got started right away, and we started working. And one of the things I started working on was talking to God. Um, because Luke told me, you have to pray. And I said, but I don't believe in God. And he said, I don't care what you believe in. <laughs> I didn't ask you what you believed in or to define it. I said, pray, so just do it. You see, and when I grew up, I grew up in a church, and I heard this song, God Sees the Little Sparrows Fall. And on that dark day in the summer when I was five years old and those unspeakable things happened to me, God died. Because I thought, where's God in that? There can't be a God. Why would God let that happen to me? And what my beautiful sponsor gave me through the gift of a fourth and a fifth step was that God was there holding me, waiting to catch me years later when I would fall again and again. And he said, I don't know why people do unspeakable things, but they're human, Lisa. And they're fallible, just like you and I. People make mistakes, and some people are sicker than others, and that man was sick, and God had nothing to do with it. That was a human decision. And suddenly, I started to have room in my heart for God, and I invited God in. And I've been inviting God in every day since. And life just continues to get better. I have been a self-seeking, selfish, self-centered, self-pitying person for most of my life because I thought I deserved to be that way. Life had been hard. Life had done me wrong. People had wronged me. And so, F the world. I'm just going to take care of me. Nobody else is, so I'm just going to take care of me. And this program, these steps, these traditions, they have helped change me uh, into a person who looks outside for a power greater on a daily basis and looks to see how I can help other people. And that is a huge change in my life. I, I try to show up for other people. Um, my home group is an online home group called AA Solution Seekers. You all are welcome. 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, seven days a week. And um, it's a great little group. There's about 30 to 60 people who show up on a daily basis. And it is a solution-based meeting. I've been to a lot of meetings. And um, they're not group therapy. So <laughs> there is a place for that. And I have a therapist, a therapist who has helped me deal with all these other outside issues. Um, I did forgive that person. Uh, again, accepting that they're a sick human being. And that way they don't get to rent space up here in my head. You know, they don't, they don't get that free space anymore. Um, I've forgiven a lot of people who have done a lot of wrong things because I also, I used to hate the Lord's Prayer. Um, but I had to study, I had to learn, I had to open my mind and I had to grow. And one of the lines that really helped change me was, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. So how can I possibly expect other people to forgive me for my wrongs if I'm not willing to do the same thing? So I'm out of time. 
I want to thank you all for attending this conference. Keep seeking. Keep showing up for your sobriety. What a wonderful way to show up for sobriety, to give yourself this gift. I hope you've made lots of new friends this weekend and you stay in touch. And uh, I just want to thank God and everyone in here for my sobriety today. Thank you.